0: Chapter forty one of Martin Eden by Jack London. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter forty one. He slept heavily all night and did not stir until aroused by the postman on his morning round. Martin felt tired and passive and went through his letters aimlessly. One thin envelope from a robber magazine contained a check for twenty two dollars. He had been dunning for it for a year and a half. He noted its amount apathetically. The old-time thrill at receiving a publisher's check was gone. Unlike his earlier checks, this one was not pregnant with promise of great things to come. To him it was a check for twenty-two dollars, that was all, and it would buy him something to eat. Another check was in the same mail, sent from a New York weekly, in payment for some humorous verse which had been accepted months before. It was for ten dollars. An idea came to him which he calmly considered. He did not know what he was going to do, and he felt in no hurry to do anything. In the meantime, he must live. Also, he owed numerous debts. Would it not be a paying investment to put stamps on the huge pile of manuscripts under the table, and start them on their travels again? One or two of them might be accepted. That would help him to live. He decided on the investment, and after he cashed the checks at the bank down in Oakland, he bought ten dollars worth of postage stamps. The thought of going home to cook breakfast in his stuffy little room was repulsive to him. For the first time, he refused to consider his debts. He knew that in his room he could manufacture a substantial breakfast at a cost from fifteen to twenty cents, but instead, He went into the Forum Café, and ordered a breakfast that cost two dollars. He tipped the waiter a quarter, and spent fifty cents for a package of Egyptian cigarettes. It was the first time he had smoked, since Ruth had asked him to stop. But he could see no reason why he should not, and, besides, he wanted to smoke. And what did the money matter? For five cents he could have bought a package of Durham and Brown Papers, and rolled forty cigarettes. But what of it? Money had no meaning to him now, except what it would immediately buy. He was chartless and rudderless, and he had no port to make, while drifting involved the least living, and it was living that hurt. The days slipped along, and he slept eight hours regularly every night, though now, while waiting for more checks, he ate in the Japanese restaurants where meals were served for ten cents. His wasted body filled out as did the hollows in his cheeks. He no longer abused himself with short sleep, overwork, and overstudy. He wrote nothing, and the books were closed. He walked much, out in the hills, and loafed long hours in the quiet parks. He had no friends, nor acquaintances, nor did he make any. He had no inclination. He was waiting for some impulse, from he knew not where, to put his stopped life into motion again. In the meantime his life remained run down, planless, and empty and idle. Once he made a trip to San Francisco to look up the real dirt, but at the last moment, as he stepped into the upstairs entrance, he recoiled and turned and fled through the swarming ghetto. He was frightened at the thought of hearing philosophy discussed, and he fled furtively, for fear that some one of the real dirt might chance along and recognize him. Sometimes he glanced over the magazines and newspapers, to see how Ephemera was being maltreated. It had made a hit, but what a hit! Everybody had read it, and everybody was discussing whether or not it was really poetry. The local papers had taken it up, and daily there appeared columns of learned criticisms, facetious editorials, and serious letters from subscribers. Helen Della Del Mar proclaimed with the flourish of trumpets and rolling of tom-toms to be the greatest woman poet in the United States, denied Brissenden a seat beside her on Pegasus, and wrote voluminous letters to the public, proving that he was no poet. The Parthenon came out in its next number, patting itself on the back for the stir it had made, sneering at Sir John Value, and exploiting Brissenden's death with ruthless commercialism. A newspaper with a sworn circulation of a half a million published an original and spontaneous poem by Helen Della Del Mar, in which she jibed and sneered at Brissenden. Also she was guilty of a second poem, in which she parodied him. Martin had many times to be glad that Brissenden was dead. He had hated the crowd so, and here all that was finest and most sacred of him had been thrown to the crowd daily the vivisection of beauty went on every nincompoop in the land rushed into free print floating their wizened little egos into the public eye on the surge of brissenden's greatness quoth one paper we have received a letter from a gentleman who wrote a poem just like it only better some time ago another paper in deadly seriousness reproving helen Della del mar for her parody said but unquestionably Miss Delmar wrote it in a moment of badinage, and not quite with the respect that one great poet should allow to another, and perhaps to the greatest. However, whether Miss Delmar be jealous or not of the man who invented Ephemera, it is certain that she, like thousands of others, is fascinated by his work, and that the day may come when she will try to write lines like his. Ministers began to preach sermons against Ephemera, and one, who too stoutly stood for much of its content, was expelled for heresy. The great poem contributed to the gaiety of the world. The comic verse-writers and the cartoonists took hold of it with screaming laughter, and in the personal columns of Society weeklies, jokes were perpetrated on it, to the effect that Charlie Frensham told Archie Jennings, in Confidence, that five lines of ephemera would drive a man to beat a cripple, and that ten lines would send him to the bottom of the river. Martin did not laugh, nor did he grit his teeth in anger. The effect produced upon him was one of great sadness. In the crash of his whole world, with love on the pinnacle, the crash of magazinedom, and the dear public was a small crash indeed. Brissenden had been wholly right in his judgment of the magazines, and he, Martin, had spent arduous and futile years in order to find it out for himself. The magazines were all Brissenden had said they were, and more. Well, he was done. He solaced himself. He had hitched his wagon to a star, and been landed in a pestiferous marsh. The visions of Tahiti, clean, sweet Tahiti, were coming to him more frequently. And there were the low palmatis and the high marquesas. He saw himself often now, on board trading schooners, or frail little cutters, slipping out at dawn through the reef at Papit, and beginning the long beat through the Pearl Atolls, to Nukahiva, and the Bay of Tehoe, where Tamiri, he knew, would kill a pig in honor of his coming, and where Tamiri's flower-garlanded daughters would seize his hands, and with a song and laughter, garland him with flowers. The South Seas were calling, and he knew that sooner or later he would answer the call. In the meantime he drifted, resting and recuperating after the long traverse he had made through the realm of knowledge. When the Parthenon check, of three hundred and fifty dollars, was forwarded to him, he turned it over to the local lawyer who had attended to Brissenden's affairs for his family. Martin took a receipt for the check and at the same time gave a note for the hundred dollars Brissenden had let him have. The time was not long when Martin ceased patronizing the Japanese restaurants. At the very moment when he had abandoned the fight, the tide turned. But it had turned too late. Without a thrill he opened a thin envelope from the Millennium, scanned the face of a check that represented three hundred dollars, and noted that it was the payment on acceptance for adventure. Every debt he owed in the world, including the pawnshop with its usurious interest, amounted to less than a hundred dollars. And when he had paid everything, and lifted the hundred-dollar note from Brissenden's lawyer, he still had over a hundred dollars in pocket. He ordered a suit of clothes from the tailor, and ate his meals in the best cafés in town. He still slept in his little room at Maria's, but the sight of his new clothes caused the neighborhood children to cease from calling him hobo and tramp from the roofs of woodsheds and over back fences. Weeki Weeki, his Hawaiian story, was bought by Warren's Monthly for two hundred and fifty dollars. The Northern Review took his essay, The Cradle of Beauty, and Mackintosh's magazine, Took the Palmist, the poem he had written to Marion. The editors and readers were back from their summer vacations, and manuscripts were being handled quickly. But Martin could not puzzle out what strange whim animated them to this general acceptance of the things they had persistently rejected for two years. Nothing of his had been published. He was not known anywhere outside of Oakland. And in Oakland, with the few who thought they knew him, he was notorious as a red shirt and a socialist. So there was no explaining this sudden acceptability of his wares. It was sheer jugglery of fate after it had been refused by a number of magazines he had taken brissenden's rejected advice and started the shame of the sun on the round of publishers after several refusals singletree darnley and company accepted it promising fall publication when martin asked for an advance on royalties they wrote that such was not their custom that books of that nature rarely paid for themselves and that they doubted if his book would sell a thousand copies Martin figured what the book would earn him on such a sale. Retailed at a dollar, on a royalty of fifteen per cent, it would bring him one hundred and fifty dollars. He decided that if he had to do it over again he would confine himself to fiction. Adventure, one-fourth as long, had brought him twice as much from the millennium. That newspaper paragraph he had read so long ago had been true after all. The first-class magazines did pay on acceptance, and they paid well. Not two cents a word, but four cents a word, had the millennium paid him, and, furthermore, they bought good stuff, too. For were they not buying his? This last thought he accompanied with a grin. He wrote to Singletree Darnley and Company, offering to sell out his rights in the shame of the sun, for a hundred dollars but they did not care to take the risk. In the meantime, he was not in need of money, for several of his later stories had been accepted and paid for. He actually opened a bank account where, without a debt in the world, he had several hundred dollars to his credit. Overdue, after having been declined by a number of magazines, came to rest at the Meredith Lowell Company. Martin remembered the five dollars Gertrude had given him, and his resolve to return it to her a hundred times over. So he wrote for an advance on royalties of five hundred dollars. To his surprise a check for that amount, accompanied by a contract, came by return mail. He cashed the check into five-dollar gold pieces, and telephoned Gertrude that he wanted to see her. She arrived at the house panting and short of breath from the haste she had made. Apprehensive of trouble, she stuffed the few dollars she possessed into her hand satchel. And so sure was she that disaster had overtaken her brother, that she stumbled forward sobbing into his arms, at the same time thrusting the satchel mutely at him. "'I'd have come myself,' he said, "'but I didn't want to row with Mr. Higginbotham. And that is what would have surely happened.' "'He'll be all right after a time,' she assured him while she wondered what the trouble was that martin was in but you best get a job first and steady down bernard does like to see a man at honest work that stuff in the newspapers broke him all up i never saw him so mad before i'm not going to get a job martin said with a smile and you can tell him so from me i don't need a job and there's the proof of it he emptied the hundred gold pieces into her lap in a glinting, tinkling stream. You remember that fiver you gave me the time I didn't have carfare. Well, there it is, with ninety-nine brothers of different ages, but all of the same size. If Gertrude had been frightened when she arrived, she was now in a panic of fear. Her fear was such that it was certitude. She was not suspicious, she was convinced. She looked at Martin in horror and her heavy limb shrank under the golden stream, as though it were burning her. "'It's yours!' he laughed. She burst into tears, and began to moan, "'My poor boy! My poor boy!' He was puzzled for a moment. Then he divined the cause of her agitation, and handed her the Meredith Lowell letter, which had accompanied the check. She stumbled through it, pausing now and again to wipe her eyes, and when she had finished, said, "'And does it mean you come by the money honestly?' "'More honestly than if I'd won it in a lottery, I earned it.' Slowly Faith came back to her, and she re-read the letter carefully. It took him long to explain to her the nature of the transaction, which had put the money into his possession, and longer still to get her to understand that the money was really hers, and that he did not need it. "'I'll put it in the bank for you,' she said finally." you'll do nothing of the sort. It's yours. To do with as you please. And if you don't take it, I'll give it to Maria. She'll know what to do with it. I'd suggest, though, that you hire a servant and take a good long rest." "'I'm going to tell Bernard all about it,' she announced when she was leaving. Martin winced, then grinned. "'Yes, do,' he said. "'And then, maybe, he'll invite me to dinner again.' "'Yes, he will. I'm sure he will.' She exclaimed fervently, as she drew him to her, and kissed and hugged him. End of chapter 41